Welcome to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. Thank you for joining me today as we discuss domestic violence in Silicon Valley. It's a very serious and important topic even if it's a difficult one. And just because one may not see visible injuries does not mean abuse does not exist. While some forms of domestic violence include physical and emotional violence, there are also other subtle forms of abuse that are equally harmful. It's an important topic to think about as a woman or man, as a sister or brother, as a friend, or as a parent of a child. Abusers walk amongst us. They will look like you and me and know how to act in society. We may even admire them and be impressed by their success. According to the report Women, Domestic Violence, and Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, in any given shelter, they found 40 to 84% of residents are victims of domestic violence. In the U.S., one out of three women and one out of four men have experienced either intimate partner violence or sexual violence. But this number does not include the more subtle forms of abuse, such as coercive control. Coercive control is a strategic form of ongoing oppression and terrorism used to instill fear. It includes behaviors to intimidate, manipulate, or control a partner, forcing them to behave in ways that they may not want to, and it includes threats, emotional abuse, or financial control. Abusers walk amongst us. Is she being told how to dress and how much makeup to wear, and told whom she's allowed to talk to? Does she have to check in with him 24-7? Is he demanding her passwords to her accounts and social media? Is he disturbing her peace? Is she feeling worse about herself? Is she more anxious and depressed? Sometimes our bodies tell us first before our minds can acknowledge the truth or make the connections to make sense of the situation. Abusers walk amongst us. Domestic violence cuts across all socioeconomic levels, professions, cultures, ages, and neighborhoods. And when there are substantial assets involved, the abusive partner often has control over them, even if his wife has her own career. Ruth Van Darling from Women of Silicon Valley states that whether you come from a healthy or unhealthy home, you are still at risk of ending up in a relationship with a sophisticated, covert abuser. Did you guys hear that? This means that even if you think you provided a happy home for your children, that when there is an experienced, cultivated, and polished abuser, all of us can be susceptible. It's a horrible thought. 
But she states that knowledge is power. And if we can educate our children, ourselves, and each other, we can greatly reduce the risk of ending up in a relationship with a covert abuser. And she continues to state that we should teach our little girls not to sacrifice safety for manners. Sometimes we need to stand strong and risk appearing rude to stay safe. And for our little boys, can we teach them tenderness, that they can be vulnerable and have empathy and still be a man? Today I'll be speaking with Ruth Finn Darling, who is the founder and executive director of Women SV, or Women of Silicon Valley, whose mission statement is, We educate the community, train providers, and empower survivors to break the cycle of intimate partner abuse so that every woman and child can exercise their fundamental human right to be free and safe in their own home. She is a domestic violence advocate and works with women impacted by domestic violence in the northern part of Santa Clara County when she had realized that there was a gap in services for victims of powerful, sophisticated abusers. And note, this interview was previously recorded in October 2020. Welcome to Lost or Found, Ruth. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have the chance to speak with you today. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's an honor to be here. Really happy to be able to talk to you this morning. Thank you. And before we begin, Ruth, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your organization? Yes. Uh, well, um, uh, Women of Silicon Valley, Women SV, is an organization that's uh, set up to help women who are involved with a powerful, sophisticated abuser. And I started this organization uh, nine years ago because I saw a gap in services for uh, women who were dealing with more subtle forms of abuse not just physical or sexual violence, but the uh, kinds of abuse that are harder to detect and that up until recently have had no laws to protect women uh, against. And those are forms of abuse like emotional, financial, legal, technological, uh, coercive control, gaslighting, emotional abuse. So uh, I wanted to uh, create an organization that would help address these more subtle forms of abuse. I wanted to raise awareness about this issue in the community and in the world in general. And I wanted to train providers to help them become more trauma-informed in dealing with their patients and students and uh, clients. I really agree with you because, you know, some people would think that, you know, domestic violence is like a subset of the population, but I think it really affects all of us. And some people can just hide it better than others. Absolutely. And the more money, power, influence, uh, resources you have, the better you can uh, hide your dark deeds. And if we think about uh, the World Health Organization uh, did a study, a world study, and uh, and concluded that one in three women on the planet will be a uh, beaten or raped uh, during her lifetime. One in three women will experience severe physical violence and usually in the, uh, an, an intimate partner relationship. That doesn't nearly begin to cover the more subtle forms of abuse. So if one in three severe physical or sexual violence, then what about these other more subtle forms? You, um, you can hardly uh, talk to a person without having them know someone or be someone who's experienced uh, these forms of abuse. Yeah, and I really wonder if actually the numbers are higher because, you know, those are the one out of three that were courageous enough to admit it. But I think the number is actually higher because many of us hide. 
you raise a very good point, Michelle. Where do we get our statistics when you go to the police station, the hospital, or seek help from law enforcement? The very places that women often don't reach out to for help, especially in middle to upper income areas where there's such huge shame and social stigma attached to this issue. And they may have been threatened by their partner. If you leave me, I will destroy you. I will take everything from you. I will take the children from you. And that often um, uh, encourages them uh, to remain silent. And that's how abuse thrives in secrecy, silence, shame, isolation. So of course, I think you're exactly right. We Our statistics are uh, really not that accurate. And um, it's much more common than we like to think. Yeah, it's kind of shocking that if, you know, one out of three women report having been abused in their lifetime, at the same time, one out of three of the population, a third of the population abuses. Absolutely. And that's another interesting perspective you're pointing out there, Michelle, is that we we focus on uh, domestic violence as a, a women's issue. How many women are uh experiences. We say that 85 to 95% of uh, victims of domestic violence are female, one in three women. Well, one in how many men is a perpetrator? Where's where's the information on that? That's very difficult to track down. And uh, this perpetrator could abuse not just one partner, but a series of part, be a serial abuser. And uh, so it's, it's uh, I think we need to do a lot more work in shining a light on this issue, not to just direct it towards women, but to men and to children, uh, at the, uh, the entire population to help educate them about what do healthy relationships look like? We talk about that a little in school, not enough, but uh, even more importantly, what do um, emotionally controlling, coercive, abusive relationships look like and how to recognize those early warning signs. For, uh, for young men to know that it's not okay to control your partner, to threaten, to intimidate, uh, that no means no. And for women to start to grow up uh, recognizing that um, they shouldn't sacrifice their own safety for the, for manners, where women are taught to be polite and uh, uh, to be soft-spoken and uh, to, if we can rec help them recognize you can be aggressive and forceful and say and uh, let people know that no means no. Yeah, when there's clearly a wrong, that really it is wrong. Yeah, that's right. But that's a, that's a point. Like we know that physical sexual violence, there's evidence to show for that often. That we we can talk about strangulation in a moment too, because there's always physical uh, evidence. But uh, but uh, for the more subtle forms of abuse. On both sides, there can be conflicting ideas of what constitutes abuse. I, uh, I write a column for our local paper, the Los Altos Town Crier, and I have a, a new one that just started. It's a seven-part series on coercive control. Uh, uh, and every time I write or my column appears in the newspaper, I have ladies that call me afterwards and say, I didn't recognize I was in an abusive relationship until I read your column. Uh, because he didn't have these physical injuries to show for it. And I've had women tell me over and over again, if only... If only he had beaten me, I could call the police. I would know it was abuse. I would get a restraining order. I would leave. I understand that. If he had hit me or made a pass at me on my first date, there wouldn't have been a second. But it's these, uh, the subtle incremental nature of this type of abuse where it starts off with suggestions and um, a little bit of oh, uh, um, pressure or uh, advice that uh, uh, over time becomes more forceful. Oh, do you, um, you really, like after you have children, do you really want to, you know, abandon the family and go back to work? Or uh, or uh, uh, what are you doing wearing all that makeup? Or who was that man you were talking to at the party? 
uh, if you really love me, you would move across the country. You would give up your career and uh, help me pursue mine and stay at home for the sake of our children. This sort of subtle, incremental, and maybe over time not so subtle pressure to give up who they are and accept uh, his version of what reality should be. You can't pick up the phone, call 911 and say, help, my husband is... Yeah, uh, he's encroaching on my personal freedom, on my sense of peace and safety in my home. I'm starting to walk, even sleep on eggshells. The police aren't going to come in response to that, but it's chipping away at your identity nonetheless. I think, you know, what you described could be like continued emotional manipulation. And if it happens every single day, you don't think that's abnormal. But, you know, if it's chipping away at who you are, maybe that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Even your choice of words like abnormal versus normal over time, they start to question, well, what is normal? This becomes their new normal that he comes in in the middle of the night and pounds on the bed and, and uh, rants and raves at her for two hours saying how useless and stupid she is. And uh, then uh, she, and she has to get up to go to work the next day. I've had ladies come in and describe that to me. And then another lady in the group will say, what? You mean that's not normal? My husband does that all the time. So they are able to check their reality, what's become their uh, new way of living living out with other people and help recognize that, no, that's not normal. That's not healthy. That's abuse. And you deserve to live in peace and safety in your own home. And that, that's absolutely disturbing your peace when that happens. So uh, it's, uh, I think, really important to help women recognize what is love? What does love look like? Because he may tell her, oh, I love you. But is that how you treat someone you love? And, and uh, what is freedom? What is peace? And what is normal? And what is real? All these things get thrown into question when you're living with a powerful, sophisticated, manipulative abuser. It's true. Like even in terms of verbal abuse, you know, one can't be incarcerated for verbal abuse. But in the end, it's still abuse. Like in the in like in medicine, like it's, you know, if someone has a mental health issue, unless they're really psychotic, they can't be institutionalized to get help. It has to be very, very bad, but abuse is still abuse. Yes. Ab oh, absolutely. And um, especially when it's these more subtle forms, it's so much harder to take action to uh, protect people from it. But um, the other thing that makes it difficult is there's no, t like there, there are diagnostic uh tests and instruments you can use to determine a diagnosis of psychosis, but there isn't a diagnostic uh, instrument that will reveal an abuser. So abusers can, f can sort of sail through the court system and they present that Dr. Jekyll face in court while being able to hide their Mr. Hyde behind closed doors. And so people see the tip of the iceberg. They see this uh, the, the soft-spoken, earnest um, father who just wants to spend time with his children and doesn't understand why his wife is now trying to alienate the children from him, undermine his relationship with his beloved children. He may have been neglectful or abusive towards the children and his wife in the past, but now under the eyes of the court, he's got this other persona that he projects. And because the court staff is only seeing the tip of the iceberg, they are judging a book by its cover. He's a doctor. He's a therapist. He's an attorney. He's a CEO. He's a pillar of the community. He volunteers on his uh, kids' uh, soccer team, gives to worthy causes, must be a good guy. And that's how they get away with it. It's that camouflage of, of how we usually judge people by these external appearances, the better to hide their dark deeds. Very Machiavellian. It's true. Like we're a society that really loves a good outside. 
you know, <laughs> without going inside. Well, and none more so than our area, Silicon Valley, or our, you know, prestigious area. Everybody wants to live here. And we look at the manicured lawns and the fancy houses. And uh, I have ladies who have um, come from these uh, beautiful, spacious homes on sprawling properties and have told me there are places out there that don't get cell phone coverage and there is no one to hear you scream. I know that really shocked me. And, you know, the first time I met you, I had heard you speak at the Santa Clara Annual Domestic Violence Conference a couple of years ago. And that really struck me when you were telling a story and you were telling um, a story of a survivor who would um, say that when she was screaming in her house, her house was so big and so far away from other houses that no one heard her scream. That shook me. <laughs> how isolated, how alone they are. And uh, there's these other um, other forces working against her uh, with uh, women who are coming from economically underprivileged areas. We accept that that domestic violence happens here and we have resources in place to help them. But when someone lives in a nice neighborhood in a big fancy home, there's almost a sense of prejudice uh, or marginalization of this population. Well, it doesn't happen there. Or if it does, she's got money, she's got resources, she should be able to handle it herself. Not always true, often not true. Often he has taken control of the financial resources. But even if she is, even if she does have some kind of a financial self-sufficiency, that doesn't make her any less a victim of torture and terror. And her pain and suffering are still real. And he uh, may still be threatening to destroy her, to hunt her down should she ever leave. And no amount of money is going to safeguard you uh, from a bullet or a knife or the, uh, some other kind of revenge. May I ask you, Ruth, what kind of things are you seeing um, in your organization and in Silicon Valley then? Um, oh, so rampant uh, financial abuse, emotional, financial, and technological. And I could talk about each one of those. Like the, uh, Let's talk about the therapist who uses his training to get inside his wife's head and make her doubt everything that she said. So she ends up apologizing for something he did. Uh, he, he says, I never said that. I would never say that. Or he discounts her reactions and say it says, "Oh, don't be so sensitive." Or I was only joking. Um, less uh, subtle. Oh, I didn't. I didn't push you. You tripped. Or oh, don't you even remember where you put your car keys when in fact he's hidden them, uh, and then they reappear and she starts to doubt her memory, uh, her perception of reality over time, her her sanity. Uh, so th the subtle manipulation. You don't have to be a therapist, but isn't it? that much more diabolical if someone is a therapist and uses his training, his psychological training uh, that's normally intended to heal someone to get inside his partner's head and dismantle her sense of power, authority, agency over her old world, her identity. And he's supposed to heal, yet he's doing harm. Yes, yes. And so we have, uh, there was a, a woman who said, the, uh, her she was married to a therapist, and she said, the last time my husband tried to kill me, he was wielding a knife, chasing her around the house, keeping her up all night. She was completely beside herself with terror. She called 911. He got to, out on the driveway of their spacious home before she was able to get to the police. And he told the police, I'm so glad you're here. I'm a therapist, and I'm very concerned about my wife's mental state. She's having another one of her psychotic meltdowns. Please help me to help her. I'm concerned for my safety, our children's safety. I do believe she needs to be on a 5150 psychiatric hold for her own safety and for ours. The police go into the house. They see her uh, beside herself with terror. They see broken plates. 
uh, things strewn around the house. She's um, not that coherent because she's uh, been kept up all night and terrorized. Uh, what happens to her? Her hands get slapped in restraints and she's taken off to the, the uh, behavioral medicine uh, locked unit. Uh, he comes to visit her. She's just, she had just told him the night before she wanted a divorce and she was tired of his cheating. And she knew that California was a community property state and she deserved to have participate in 50% of their joint assets. That, those are the mistakes she made. And what did it lead to? A call to the, her call to the police, him twisting it around, having her put on a 5150 hold. And now she says to her husband, why did you do that? And he says, because I can. It's one of the ultimate forms of uh, the manifestations of evil is someone taking their training, that sacred training that is meant to heal, as you say, and then turning it, twisting it, using his credentials, the PhD after his name, his psychological training to convince the police officers that appearances, they should judge by appearances. Her unkempt, uh, scattered, fragmented state uh, and the broken plates uh, match uh, what he says about her, that she's crazy, had a psychotic meltdown, that he's the innocent victim. Yeah, it's sadistic, you know, and I think we as a society need to change. Like, if we can't recognize what the truth is, and we believe this man, when she's the one, you know, who looks like the victim, society needs to change. Like, we need to understand that this happens. Yes. And I, you know, bless you for helping to do that, to, for, uh, for having a forum like this that helps bust the myth that you are educated. Uh, you've got letters after your name. Uh, you're a high income earner. Uh, uh, you look like a pillar of society. You must therefore be a good person, not necessarily. And Michelle, you use that word sadistic. And uh, that's a part of the dark tetrad that's commonly talked about in this um, demographic. Reed Malloy is a forensic psychologist. He said a number of interesting things. One, even as a forensic psychologist, you cannot tell a seasoned liar they're that good. They will take kernels of truth and weave lies through them to make the, the, uh, the, their lies more credible because we've got that ounce of truth in them. Um, but he talks about four different components of the dark tetrad that I see over and over again in my uh, practice with my ladies. I'm not a therapist. I'm not allowed to use diagnostic labels. But when I do my trainings for therapists, because they get um, only zero to 15 hours of online training in domestic violence and no training at all in dealing with uh, partners who have personality disorders uh, or who uh, are emotionally uh, abusive. So uh, when I do trainings for my uh, for the therapist, I describe a set of characteristics and we can talk about those in a moment. But when I lay out the behaviors and characteristics that are described to me over and over again, now by over a thousand women that I've worked with in the, the last nine years, they feed back to me the labels that Reed Malloy uses in his dark tetrad, narcissist, psychopath, Machiavellian, and sadistic. So narcissistic, psychopathic, Machiavellian, and sadistic. So the, that, sort of that sense, the narcissistic component, the world revolves around him. It's, it's, it's his show 24-7. And any attention spent on her, she's uh, made to feel that she's being selfish unless she's not devoting 100% of her attention 24-7. And that actually sort of coincides with how often abuse will start when she becomes pregnant or right after giving birth. Because in a healthy relationship, that child is seen as a welcome addition to the family. There's plenty of love and attention to go around. But from his worldview, he sees life as a zero-sum game. 
If you're getting more attention, that means I'm getting less. I have to take from you in order to have what I need. This child coming into the world here is competition for attention and love that he wants focused 100% on himself. So that's where we see women uh, being uh, often physically injured for the first time or very uh, severely abused uh, uh, emotionally uh, in their uh, when they're pregnant and then after they give birth. Uh, but that, uh, then the psychopathic component of they tend to lack empathy. They tend to lack remorse. They tend to lack self-reflection. They, if they are understanding how someone's feeling, it's the better to manipulate them with. And then we get into the Machiavellian component. They're opportunistic. They, like, they look for weaknesses and vulner, vulnerabilities in their partner and they exploit them. And the other side of that Machiavellian component is looking good on the outside. Uh, in The Prince, he talks about how it's uh, if you have that uh, outward appearance of honesty, it's easier to hide your dark deeds. Sadistic component where they actually seem to enjoy causing pain and suffering, fear to the very people they should be protecting the most. So that's how we talk about the dark yeah. thread in this population. And I feel like, you know, with certain personalities, like they share all of those traits. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Oh, but that's exactly what I'm talking about, Michelle. An abuser uh, uh, has these four, and the yeah. abuser has the dark tetrad. That's in one person, all of these features in that same person. And you're not going to go to therapy to heal from that. We have ladies who end up trying to take their partner to couples counseling, and the couples counselor gets pulled into the web of lies spun by uh, her partner, where and it can become the two of them trying to fix her. Uh, and uh, her being told, but what's your role in this? Uh, how can you be more assertive? How can you model vulnerability? Well, look how hard he's trying. Look at the tears. You know how it, he just wants to connect with you. And if she dares to say some of the things he's done to humiliate, shame, or frighten her, he will see that as shaming to him, as attacking uh, him, and he'll punish her for it later. So uh, that's how therapy can become a tool um, a weapon in the hands of an abuser. Like, you know, I've heard multiple times, like with uh, people who've had narcissistic personality disorder partners, how the counselor or the therapist, you know, falls into the lives of the, <laughs> of that person. And then, you know, it's just like, we, we are a society that loves things that look too good, unfortunately. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, well, it could be a decoy. It might not be a duck. Uh, but you're bringing up another important point, Michelle, and that's um, the dangers of private therapy with an abuser. So just as there are dangers with couples counseling, uh, I'd say for somebody who's suffering from domestic violence, it could be very helpful uh, for a survivor to go to a trauma-informed therapist. If they, if they know trauma-informed cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, and or EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. These can be very helpful uh, for a survivor. So therapists can help with the fallout from the crime of domestic violence. But it's really important that therapists understand that domestic violence is a crime, not a communication issue. Uh, so there, there's psychological um, uh, side effects of living with an abuser, and that's where therapists can be part of the healing process to help with the anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and health-related issues, everything from migraines to broken heart syndrome, uh, which has afflicted several of my ladies, that rush of adrenaline that damages the heart from living uh, with this type of abuser. Uh, but the dangers of private therapy uh, with between an abuser and a therapist Therapists, like physicians, 
like advocates, like lawyers, are taught to take people as they present. So um, if I go to a therapist and I say that, you know, I've lived with an abuser for 20 years and uh, I feel like I used to be smart, I used to have a memory, I used to be competent, I used to have a full-time job, a career, I've been a stay-at-home mom for 15 years and my husband tells me I'll never, you know, I, I can never get a job now because I'm useless and stupid and I can never make it on my own. The therapist might say, I, I hear your pain. I understand. I'm going to meet you where you are and let's work on that self-esteem and, you know, helping you recognize what you, uh, what you deserve and lift that up, that sense of agency. That's where a therapist can help taking the patient as the patient presents. Now you take an abuser, goes to a therapist and says, I'm just trying to understand my wife. It seems like she's been starting to have some mental health issues lately, like uh, losing her keys, not remembering where she's put them. Uh, she's uh, forgetful and scattered when she talks and she just doesn't seem like she's keeping up her household duties anymore and the kids are starting to suffer as a result of it. I'm trying to do everything I can. Look, I'm talking to you and uh, I, you know, I like to know what to do to help fix her, fix our relationship. Uh, so somebody is talking to a therapist and remember what Reed Malloy said, you cannot tell a seasoned liar. At that moment, he may be believing his own lies and uh, so convincing is he. I've had ladies say, my partner tells lies so much more convincingly than I can tell the truth. He lies better than I tell the truth. So the therapist takes this abuser as he presents and reinforces the abuser's worldview that he is indeed the victim. And uh, abusers like this who don't do self-reflection, don't feel remorse, blame everybody always rather than take responsibility for their problems is just having his worldview reinforced by his therapist. Comes home and says, here's what my therapist said about you. My therapist agrees. And if she's become isolated, as so many of our ladies do, become cut off from their outside world, friends, and other sources to uh, help them uh, recognize what reality is, she's liable to end up believing him. I guess it is my fault. I guess I am the problem here. So he, now she's fighting two people instead of one. It's true. I think when someone keeps on feeding you lies and they're, you know, and it keeps on coming, sometimes as a person you get confused as as to what the truth is. But they're so, you know, almost gifted at what they do, like the abusers, you know? Like that that powerful story that you told us, that therapist who was running after his w wife with a knife. She called 911, but then when he goes to the door, the police believe him. You know, the police are like, hopefully like our saviors in our society, but they, they're believing the wrong person. Like anyone can fall trapped to that. Absolutely. And then we see that continue on into the court system where uh, uh, sometimes I've had ladies who've ended up with restraining orders against them being made to look like they were the abuser. So he has trapped her in a corner and uh, been uh, yelling at him uh, and uh, yelling at her and uh, terrorizing her. And uh, he goes in to attack her and she puts her hands up and maybe she scratches him or maybe he's strangling her and she scratches his face. He calls the police and says she attacked him. They see scratches on his face. If they're not trained, they may not re recognize that those are defensive wounds, that she was trying to protect herself. And if she doesn't have uh, visible injuries on her neck to show the, uh, the abuse, uh, she could end up uh, being hauled off and put in jail uh, and have a restraining order against her and lose custody of her children. And then she ends up in, um, in the court setting with a judge looking at, oh, restraining order, jail, uh, husband is a doctor, therapist, uh, attorney, 
pillar of society. Yeah. Who are you going to believe? What a lie. Comes this sort of snowball effect. And yeah. And uh, like what we're getting at is a lie spoken often enough begins to sound like the truth. And they're so convincing that that is often what happens. And women often enter the court system innocently, naively thinking the truth will set them free. And I often say that and a good attorney and a good story, a compelling story told to the judge that will go a long way towards uh, setting you free. But the truth in itself, like I said before, anything in the hands of an abuser can become a weapon, even the truth. Can you give us an example of what financial abuse looks like? Oh, yes. Oh, absolutely. So uh, in the beginning, it can look like a, like an equal division of uh, labor. What if he's a financial analyst and uh, she's a nurse? Doesn't it make sense that he would take care of the income tax uh, statement or the, you know, the monthly budgeting? And uh, she may uh, enjoy cooking. So she takes care of the meals and uh, he takes care of the income tax returns. In a healthy relationship, that may be just fine. Division of labor, teamwork. Um, the problem with the law is the two become one in the eyes of the law. So uh, debt, any debts along with any assets accrued in the course of a marriage, both share in. So what if he has a habit uh, that his wife is not aware of? What if he likes to spend money on uh, prostitutes or gambling? Uh, uh, what if he's got a drug habit uh, into uh, cocaine or some other illegal drug uh, and uh, he's depleting the bank accounts? Uh, he doesn't have like a Lamborghini with a, uh, an invoice to show for it. But I had um, uh, a lady who she with her partner, they put their life savings into a, a fixing up a house and uh, selling it at a tidy profit and putting that money in a joint bank account with the implicit agreement, explicit agreement that that uh, account was to be was to remain untouched. And that was going to be their nest egg to uh, invest in the house of their dreams. So uh, she uh, honors that commitment. Uh, and a couple of years go by and uh, she, uh, she, they are starting to uh, look for a house. Mind you, the emotional abuse has kind of started to ramp up over the years and she's uh, not quite sure, but she's thinking maybe a house and a child will, uh, that will um, heal the relationship. She finds the house of her dreams. Um, it's got multiple offers, but she's ready. She wants to put another offer in. She calls her husband. She looks at the bank account and how much does she see in that joint bank account? Zero, zero. Uh, and uh, shortly after that, he files for uh, divorce. And certainly after that, um, she served with um, uh, uh, income tax uh, uh, penalty statement saying that she has uh, defaulted uh, on uh, paying uh, income tax over the last five years. Her, uh, her husband, who would say, you don't need to sign this. It's all electronic now. Uh, she's caught up, you know, with, uh, with, uh, with her life, with her career, and then other other things she trusts and with trust she trusts her partner uh and then she's made to pay for it in, in many ways so um in the beginning he may put her on an allowance saying that uh he's working now she's raising children and uh she wants he wants to just make sure that there's an accounting of where the uh, where the money is going he may call it his money uh if she's he's working she's staying at home um uh when it comes time to divorce 
Uh, he may see it all. They often see it all as his money. She sat on her fanny, they will often say, while he went out there and earned all the money, not giving her credit for making it possible for her to uh, for him to earn that money while she raised the children. Um, he may accumulate debts on the side without uh, letting her know. Uh, and so that when, uh, and if she does end up filing for divorce and goes to even rent an apartment afterwards, she finds that her uh, credit score uh, has tanked uh, because of the debt that she's accumulated because of her uh, because of her husband. He may uh, take her back to court over and over again, like financial, emotional, legal abuse. They all kind of blend in with one another. Many of my ladies have been brought back to court again and again to deplete their emotional and financial resources. He'll often have a, a, a dream team representing him and uh, she'll uh, be representing herself. Um, if he gets wind of the fact that she wants to leave, I had another lady uh, who was tired of the, not just emotional abuse, but also physical violence that she was experiencing and told her husband that uh, she wanted to leave. And he said to her, give us one more chance. Uh, we were happy once, let's be happy again. Let's go to couples counseling. Let's just give it, a, give it this last chance. She agreed. During the six months that they were in couples counseling, when he appeared to be going along and uh, listening and being with the program, uh, at the end of six months, he served her with divorce papers and she went to look uh, to what was in the joint bank account and found nothing in it. Uh, he got a super uh, a lawyer to represent him and she was left representing herself. So there's just uh, so many ways that women can be uh, can be duped because they go into a relationship uh, with trust and love and they project those um, values and feelings onto their partner, uh, even to the point of saying, well, you know, in the, if they end up getting a divorce, he'll he'll recognize how much it would hurt the children. He will stop short of doing X, Y, or Z because he knows it will hurt the children. Not so. The children become uh, spo uh, spoils of war, trophies, uh, and they will often try to undermine the relationship uh, between mother and child as a way of punishing her, but also going after more and more custody uh, because that'll save him money. Uh, he'll look good in the eyes of the judge and he gets to punish the mother, a trifecta. They're very good at thinking several moves ahead. Court becomes a chess game and they start to manipulate all the players uh, in the in the courtroom. How, do you feel like society is doing enough to to see this? You know, Michelle, you bring up a, another huge, important point. Thank you. I love all your questions. Uh, so um, there are there are signs of hope. Uh First, there were signs of despair within the last four years. Uh, women's rights uh, have taken a giant step backwards. Um, uh, two years ago, the Department of Justice changed their definition of domestic violence. Up until two years ago, if a woman went on the uh, Department of Justice website to get information about domestic violence and what her rights were and how to identify it, she would have found that it included things like financial abuse and emotional abuse, controlling behavior. Starting two years ago, going on the Department of Justice website up until this current moment, if you go on today and look at the definition of domestic violence, it includes only felonies and misdemeanors. Gone as any reference to any other type of abuse that doesn't leave physical wounds uh, or is not like a legal, um, a, a criminal act, like a misdemeanor or, or a felony. Um, so women in family court, what recourse do they have? Well, thanks to an actress by the name of Evan Rachel Wood, you may be familiar mm -hmm. with her work, yes, in Westworld and Kajillionaire, movie Kajillionaire, um, 
She is a domestic violence uh, and uh, emotional abuse survivor herself. And if you go on her website, phoenixact.com, you can see her testimony that she gave when she was, um, she created, um, put together a legislative uh, committee chaired by Mitch Emerson, uh, who um, went to battle to uh, spearhead a mission to make coercive control uh, illegal in the United States. Evan Stark wrote a book on coercive control that encompasses the more subtle forms of abuse, emotional, financial, technical, technological, legal, the, the things that monopolize a survivor's perception. So she's totally focused on survival and what her husband or partner is going to say or do, how uh, how he's going to react, his punishment, his threats. His He doesn't have to hit her directly. He can hit the wall beside her uh, to intimidate her and to suggest, well, first the wall, and if you don't toe the line, uh, then yourself. He can undermine the relationship with uh, uh, her uh, children, uh, threaten to take everything away from her, destroy her, hunt her down, uh, but stop short of saying, you know, uh, kill her. So there's all these ways that uh, he um, uh, has been able to terrorize her without any consequence legally up until now. Uh, as of October 1st of this year, uh, a, a new law was passed. It was Senate Bill 1141 that is incorporating coercive control into the definition of domestic violence and can be grounds for a restraining order, which if violated is a, uh, can be a criminal act, a, a misdemeanor. So it's starting off in family court. It is going to take a while to educate the judges uh, and uh, the court staff and attorneys and law enforcement about what coercive control means. But it's a start in the right direction. That law is going to go into effect in January 2021. And I just started a series in the Los Altos Town Crier, um, part one of a seven-part series uh, on uh, coercive control that's uh, leading up to and all about this new bill that's going to go into effect in January 2021. That is the hope on the horizon. And if um, uh, Joe Biden uh, is uh, is elected as our uh, as the new president, uh, if that all goes through smoothly, he he spearheaded the committee behind uh, the Violence Against Women Act uh, that um, uh, has funded so many domestic violence agencies across the country. And now it is stalled out. Uh, we need to refund that. Um, in Santa Clara County, we get thousands and thousands of uh, women reaching out for support who are suffering from not just emotional and phys uh, financial, legal, and technological abuse, but physical, life-threatening, physical and sexual violence. And to know how many beds there are in the shelters in Santa Clara County to accommodate those thousands and thousands of women suffering from that kind of terror and danger, how many beds? 62. <sighs> In Santa Clara County. In Santa Clara County, in our rich Santa Clara County. There's more work to be done, much more work to be done. We have more shelters for animals in this country than we do for women. Yeah, it's amazing because like childhood trauma is actually so common, yet, you know, we don't talk about it as is domestic violence. But you know, it's 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 just a shame. I think I think we're afraid. We don't know that it's abuse sometimes, but it's abuse. 
Absolutely, Michelle. And you're getting to another really important area here, and that's the ACEs, uh, the uh, Adverse Childhood Experiences, that study that was done by Kaiser. Uh, and it's like, what, 20 years ago? And now they're just starting to talk about it and raise awareness that uh, adverse childhood experiences impact children for the rest of their lives. And with enough categories of trauma, it can take up to 20 years off your lifespan. And uh, those adverse childhood experiences include witnessing a mother being treated violently or a parent being treated treated violently in the, in the home. Uh, they include other issues like uh, um, drug and alcohol uh, abuse, mental illness, neglect. Bullying. Yes. All of these things can uh, contribute, but with enough of those categories, you're actually uh, impacting the, uh, the number of years you're going to be alive on this planet. But uh, domestic violence is not just an adult issue. It's also a, ch a children's issue. Uh, when children grow up in a home, uh, sometimes um, our, the average innocent civilian will think, oh, the child was too young, or uh, I was pregnant when he hit me. The child will have no memory of that. Not so. When does abuse start impacting a child's development? In the womb. The cortisol and the stress hormones flooding a body impact uh, a, a, a fetal development. And that continues when the child is born. Uh, the stress, uh, anxiety, trauma continue. To I think that's the key them. that you say, you know, Childhood trauma affects brain development in our children. You know, it affects them. And, that, you know, with that CDC Kaiser study, um, and, and there's been multiple studies subsequent from, the, from that, but, you know, it, it, there's a link between chronic health issues, emotional problems, social problems. You know, it doesn't go away unless we see it and we address it. Oh, absolutely. And you start with children who are experiencing stress and trauma and dissociating in one way or another because it's so painful to live in their body and their home. And then they find when they become teenagers, they're looking for ways to self-medicate, to deal with that pain short term because that's they, they have that foreshortened view of their life. They never, they don't, when kids grow up with trauma, they don't really see themselves growing old. Uh, it, uh, they have this sense that that, uh, that life is, is short and may end uh, sooner than the average person's. And that causes them to seek love and uh, relief from pain in sometimes all the wrong places. So having sex at an early age, experimenting with drugs and alcohol, uh, uh, self-medicating through like food or shopping or excessive exercise. So you see eating disorders uh, and uh, drug addictions and alcohol problems, anything to dull the pain. And then uh, uh, with the stress and um, living with that on a daily basis takes a huge toll on your immune system. And so we see women ending up uh, in my, um, in my program now with diagnoses of uh, life-threatening illnesses that have no history of anything like this uh, in their past. Uh, but um, uh, stress will take a huge toll on your immune system. So they end up with everything, as I said, from migraines to, to cancer. And the the incredible physician, uh, Christian Northrup, OBGYN, wrote a great book uh, on this issue. She traditionally- Dodging energy vampires. Absolutely. Yeah. You see this new turn that she's taken uh, traditionally, her books have been about women's physical health issues as a traditionally Western trained physician. And now she's taking this more spiritual bent where she talks about how draining it is to live with an energy vampire. 
but I but I do want to give some good news uh, for children and adults growing up with this issue. We also know about the neuroplasticity of the brain. So uh, the brain is more like skin and it can form new neurons and uh, pathways and uh, can heal over time with intervention, with, uh, with therapy, with other uh, more positive influences in a child's and even an adult's life. There is hope and there is healing, but there's also more importantly choice. When a child grows up in a home like this, there's basically three roads. Maybe there's more, but there's at least three roads he can travel. And the first one is he grows up to become like what he saw, an abuser, somebody that is uh, has this sense of entitlement, that he's going to be in control, that he's always right. He can never be, he's always going to be right, even when he's wrong. Uh, very shame sensitive, uh, that uses uh, force or uh, manipulation to get his ways. That's what he knows. Abuse is learned behavior. It can be unlearned with great motivation, but if you if that's the road he goes down, that's one of those dark roads. Another dark road that someone can go down if they're growing up with this kind of abuse is becoming a victim of, of this type of perpetrator when they grow up. And the ACEs studies point to that as well. Um, uh, if if you've seen mom uh, in this sort of diminished, uh, subordinate, submissive role of surrender. Uh, that can make you uh, uh, more liable or vulnerable to slipping into this type of relationship. But I do want to point out that women who grow up in healthy homes are also at risk of ending up in this type of uh, relationship because these guys are so charming in the beginning. You can be uh, have really healthy self-esteem. Your parents could have uh, modeled this for you, love and respect in the home. And because these guys are charming and manipulative uh, and successful and have check all the right boxes in the beginning, uh, any woman uh, with uh, 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 intelligence and sophistication and uh, success in her life can still be vulnerable. So these two roads, going back to growing up with trauma, door number one, that dark door becoming a perpetrator, door number two, becoming that, that dark door, becoming a victim of um, a perpetrator, door number three, is that third choice. And that's what we share with our ladies that they can share with their children, that they have ultimate control over their destiny. Their destiny lies in their hands and they can learn from their negative experiences. Uh, they can invite other or look at other role models in their life. Do they have teachers or coaches, uh, uh, uncles, aunts that uh, can model what a healthy adult male looks like? Do they have friends with families uh, who are, um, have uh, uh, healthy relationships. There are other examples of how to be in the world, uh, but even if they don't have many of those examples, can they learn from the suffering that they experience at the hands of the perpetrator, their abusive parent, that I know what that pain feels like. I don't want to ever inflict that on anyone else. I'm going to be extra loving and kind in my relationships growing up because I know what it feels like to experience the opposite. So that's the third road and that's where the hope lies. And I, I think it's empowering because they can make the choice not only to save themselves, but even to save their children by making that choice, by stopping the abuse. Absolutely, Michelle, right on. So that's where they can break the cycle because otherwise it's at risk of repeating from generation to generation to generation. Ruth, if I may ask you, you know, in terms of the ACEs score, do you find that, you know, the abusers that you see or you've heard of, you know, I would imagine that they've had high ACEs score as well. Do you think they were abused in their own past? I'd say 99% of them. Uh, that's an excellent question because um, the when I uh, check with our ladies about their uh, partner's past, 
I can't remember uh, any single one of them saying, oh, he grew up in a happy home with loving parents and it was all good. They're, they talk about experiences where, oh, uh, mom ran off at an early age. Parents got divorced at an early age. Dad was abusive. Uh, uh, mom, what, even if she was in the home, uh, she wasn't able to protect the child from abuse. She was neglectful or, um, uh, sometimes there's a, 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 a genetic component, uh, where they just come out of the starting gate and they seem to lack a, lack a conscience. They may have parents that, um, uh, talking about the perpetrator now and the childhood. Uh, I think, uh, you can be born into this world with a, a propensity towards lots of empathy or a propensity towards a little bit of empathy, or maybe not very much or hardly any at all, a brain that just doesn't, you know, somehow they weren't standing in line when the empathy gene was uh, was handed, handed out. But, <laughs> or it didn't really activate too well. <laughs> yeah, but, but I think, you know, if you think about empathy on the spectrum, if we have parents that are, can demonstrate, model, love and empathy, there's great hope for children with various levels of beginning empathy. Uh, but for uh, children that have grown up in abusive homes, well, I went to a um, one of the domestic violence conferences I went to, a forensic psychologist was talking about serial killers that he was interviewing in prison. And he said all of them had come from traumatic uh, childhood uh, backgrounds. And he told the story of one uh, whose father would bring home a puppy to the 10 year old boy. And the pup, and of course, the 10 year old boy would bond with the puppy. And the and uh, the dad would then put the puppy in a box and give the child a gun. And the two of them, he would force the child to do target practice uh, on the box of the puppy inside. And that little boy grew up to become a serial killer that murdered entire families. So that's kind of an extreme case of how do you create a killer? How do you crush any little seed of empathy uh, by uh, punishing them for having empathy? Um, and I think um, uh, when children grow up in an abusive home, sometimes they can think, if I feel um, sad or lonely uh, uh, or uh, hurt by something that somebody has said or done, if I cry, that's weakness. I'm going to get punished for it because dad will often punish a child for crying. Tears are for sissies, for weaknesses. For, for weak people. And so they grow up having this hard armored shell around them. And they, it, they learn that it's a killer be killed world, crush the competition, win, win, win. Uh, and that philosophy can go over very well in Silicon Valley. Uh, but uh, what I like to tell our ladies is we can feel sorry in our own hearts for the trauma that their partners have experienced in growing up while holding them accountable for their behavior as adults. So no matter what happened to them as children, at a certain point, they come to that cro the crossroads, door number one, door number two, door number three. And with door number three, that's where they would decide, oh, I've, I've got these um, feelings of rage towards my uh, father. I'm a rage-filled boy and I'm becoming a rage-filled man. Uh, how can I deal with this rage uh, so I don't take it out on my intimate partner? Maybe I'll go to therapy. Maybe I'll process it. Maybe I'll remember what happened and do it in a safe place with a therapist, uh, make some meaning out of it. And, oh, I know I'll become a doctor. I'll become a therapist. I'll help others heal from this kind of tra trauma because I experienced it myself. And that's going to give me a, a deeper level of empathy for other people going through this trauma. That's that third choice that we hope that they choose. But if they don't, that's when they become dangerous or that's when they become survivors or victims, um, sometimes the ultimate victim of uh, domestic violence themselves. But it's in the end, their destiny is in their hands to become a survivor, perpetrator 
or a person of good character who knows how to love and uh, treat people with care and respect because they've seen the opposite. I absolutely agree. And I think oftentimes we get to abuse when it's too late. In the news uh, this week, there's this awful story of um, a woman who was stabbed to death. And basically, her 11-year-old son ran out of the house to the neighbor screaming, my dad's killing my mom, my dad's killing my mom. And then um, um, the woman was like on the bed. And her husband was stabbing her to death. And then what was really awful as well was that her seven-year-old daughter was in the room and she grabbed the knife. She grabbed the knife that her dad was, like, stabbing her mother with. I'm sorry. And then it totally ripped apart her hands. So the mother's dead and the seven-year-old has had multiple surgeries because her hands were ripped apart. You know, it just, we often get to it when it's too late. And then what was strange was that they interviewed the dad and they're like, what happened? And he didn't deny it. And he, he was saying, she was such a nice person, but I just couldn't control myself. You know, it's crazy to think that we could get into that state of rage and you can't control yourself, you know? I don't think it's uncommon to maybe have rage, but to actually act upon it. That's just so. So this is where we get into that dark side of human nature that I, I see the empathy and love uh, in your in your eyes, Michelle, and, and how hard it is for a person as good as you are to understand that kind of evil that I am always concerned when I hear um, um, people talking about, oh, he just snapped or he lost control. Uh, and then we think of people being sent to anger management, anger management, like he's got to learn to control his temper. But then we, uh, if we look closer, we sometimes see who he in quotes loses that temper with. Does he, uh, if he gets pulled over to the side of the road, is he losing it with a police officer? Sometimes, but rarely. Is he losing it with his boss? Is he losing it with a judge? Uh, if, if he's with other people in positions of power that are superior to his own, how does he behave then? So these guys often choose who to lose their temper uh, uh, around. Uh, and often this type of person, they see people as possessions, as objects, as resources. And there are ways of dealing with the world and people. It's very transactional. You do this for me, and then I'll consider that you've got some worth. What have you done for me lately? And that's how they see their intimate partner. That's how they see their children, as possessions, as objects. And if somehow something happens where they're seen to have betrayed them in some way, gotten out of line, then they take, they think it's perfectly within their um, their realm to punish them and uh, to seize control back, however that looks like. So it's not so much that they're losing control, but they are exercising the ultimate act of control over another human being. If I can't have you, no one else will. We don't know what happened the moment before she was stabbed, but did she tell him, I've had it, I'm through, I want out? And often these guys will say to their partner, if I can't have you, no one else will either. And there it goes. It's sadistic. <laughs> oh, absolutely. There we go back to the dark tetrad. And with children, yes, you see, uh, as you're saying, you bring up so many important points where we talk about it. Is it, um, why do we wait until it's too late? Here she's dead. But now we have the children. Now we have the children. Now what's going to happen with them? They will need to be in therapy, I would think, for the rest of their lives little boy is he going to learn this is how you deal with uh, somebody that a uh, partner that has 
in quotes, betrayed you, you get to exercise that ultimate option. They, he's seen that as a, it's set a precedent now in their life. Just like with, um, if you find out that someone in your immediate family has committed suicide, that's one of the questions that you as a physician, right? Ask on, uh, is anybody close to you committed suicide that you want to be thinking about that with the patient that you're, uh, that you're treating because they've seen that as a precedent in their lives. And do they see that as an option? So you want to just have your radar up for that. These, these little children who've grown up in an environment, no doubt this wasn't the first act of violence. I'm going to go out on the limb. Though sometimes we'll see emotional abuse, emotional abuse, emotional abuse, and then there's uh, the day that he kills her. But uh, very often we see this uh, buildup towards that ultimate act of violence. I also serve on the domestic violence death review team. So I know what happens when that uh what the ultimate act of domestic violence looks like. Uh, that's what we talk about every month in our, in our, in our team. And um, what we try to do is learn from that, uh, the, the, the things that have led up to it to see how we can inform all the different agencies that are involved to how we can raise awareness and maybe um, prevent or try to reduce the incidences of that uh, ultimate act happening in the, in the future. There can be warning signs. Um, has he become more and more controlling? Is he cutting her off from her friends and uh, uh, outside associates? Is she, is she looking increasingly desperate? Is she looking sleep deprived? Uh, is um, uh, Has she become a different person than who she was before? Uh, it, has she tried to reach out for services and uh, is she feeling like nobody's listening to her, that like she can't get the help she needs? Is she living in terror? Has she confided in a close friend? Uh, has she called a domestic violence agency or a, a, you know, a 24 hour hotline? Do we see, uh, or the kids, are they uh, getting into trouble? Sometimes kids will um, end up uh, having a hard time focusing in class uh, and being diagnosed with ADD or ADHD, sometimes it's because their brain works differently, just born that way. Uh, but sometimes their brain is working differently because of the trauma they're witnessing at home. So can we be super aware of our children in the classroom? Can teachers become more trauma-informed so they can recognize early warning signs? We have to contend with the whole mandated reporting um, challenge as well. We're sometimes I, I was a teacher before becoming a domestic violence advocate. So I know that sometimes teachers can be reluctant to ask difficult questions because they're going to get difficult answers. And what if these teachers are in a private school and a dad that's being discussed is a primary donor to the school? Like, uh, how, do you want to go down that road? And uh, children are very good at keeping secrets. They are very good at keeping secrets, especially if dad has ordered them to. Sometimes what will happen is there'll be an incident. She will have called the police. And by the time the police get there, uh, dad will have gotten to the child and said, you know, if you, if you, if you don't tell the story as I'm telling you to tell it, dad's going to get taken away. You'll never see dad again. I'm not going to be able to, you know, cover, go pay for your tuition or uh, you're uh, going to starve to death because mom will have no money to buy meals. You really want that to happen? Uh, and so the child, by the time the police arrive, I didn't see anything, nothing happened. The child is silenced. So uh, if uh, teachers can recognize that they are maybe the first point of entry into the system to get help for a lot of these children that are suffering in silence now more so than ever because of COVID. Um, I used to really worry about children being homeschooled. Anything in the hands of an abuser can become a weapon, even homeschooling, because children fall off the radar. They fall off the grid when they're homeschooled. Uh, uh, and um, children everywhere are falling off the radar now, being 
being homeschooled. Yes, they attend Zoom classes. What happens uh, when they are in the home 24-7 with a potentially uh, abusive parent? And statistically, if a man abuses his wife, he is much more at risk of abusing the children, not just physically, but also sexually. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the truth is, I think the reality is that behind closed doors, you don't know what happens in that home. But if we're all aware how you know prevalent abuse is, I think that's when we can start asking questions. I think that's when we can start seeing. Asking questions, breaking the silence, that's the first step. Uh, abuse thrives in secrecy, silence, shame, and isolation. It inadvertently ends up colluding with the abuser. It's so hard for a woman to reach out for help to make that first call, handshaking, thinking her husband's watching, that he's omniscient. Uh, we didn't talk much about technological abuse yet, but that is a very, that's very prevalent, especially in Silicon Valley, uh, where sometimes it's the perpetrator who's designed the technology that is using it as a weapon against his partner. But you don't have to have designed it in order to wield it as a weapon. So we have women with fancy cars where her partner is using the app on the, uh, that comes with uh, the, the car to um, trace in real time the movements of his wife, to listen in on her conversation in the car remotely, to start and stop the car remotely, to mess with her, to tamper uh, with the electronics while she's driving the car, making it hazardous uh, for her. And if he's the master owner, he's got the access to all the information in the little black box in the car. Computers are, uh, cars are computers on wheels now and are equally vulnerable to um, surveillance devices and remote control devices as any other piece of electronics. So we have ladies who's um, Laptops have been hacked. Their websites have been hacked into. Uh, their phones have been hacked. So he's listening to their conversations. We have ladies who've had uh, even the charging brick on your cell phone can have a hidden mini camera in it. Uh, we've had ladies who've been surveilled through the uh, their vents and their ceilings through smoke detectors with hidden cameras. You can buy it on Amazon for 20, 30 bucks now. Uh, so um, we need to be reaching out to the high tech industry to ask them to do a better job protecting domestic violence survivor survivors from being surveilled by their uh, by their partners. Uh, right now, it's about the bottom line. It's about freedom of information for everybody. Let's uh, make sure that Susie gets home safe from the prom or catch your cheating spouse. Uh, this is how often this uh, malware and spyware uh, is marketed. But what about the innocent victim of abuse whose partner is using this technology to track her, to monitor her, to terrorize her? How do we help that person? Please, high-tech industry, can we address this problem? You know, I think it's so unimaginable that abuse like this can exist, but the problem is it's common. It is so common. Yes, and um, that's the problem, that uh, abusers walk amongst us like regular people. They look like regular people. They act like regular people. They have regular people jobs. They talk like regular human beings while having this dark side that you would never guess at. And if you're a good person, you will tend to project your qualities onto other people and think, oh, yeah, they're uh, innocent until proven guilty. The problem is an abuser projects his 
qualities, characteristics onto other people and thinks I've got to get you before you get me. It's a kill or be killed, crush or be crushed uh, kind of world out there. Uh, but because this uh, type of abuse is so common, so prevalent, uh, and so easy to hide in our civilization, um, that's how women are being terrorized on a daily basis and made to uh, look and act and think like they're paranoid. And they can show up in an emergency room and start to talk about their husband who knows where he is, where she is 24-7, knows what she said to her partner, even when she's at her partner's home, not his, uh, who knows where she's driving, even when she leaves her uh, cell phone at home. Uh, 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 somebody that's talking like this can start to sound paranoid psychotic if she hasn't slept in days because he's been keeping her awake every night you can drive someone crazy through lack of sleep you can kill them eventually through lack of sleep so she's coming across scattered fragmented uh, uh, uh distorted perception of reality um i had a lady who was very religious and even that was incorporated into the psychiatric diagnosis when her husband got her committed, put on a 5150 and then a 5250 hold as he and his sister expressed fear for their lives after his wife said, I'm leaving you. I know we've got uh, $20 million and I deserve to have half of that. And even though I've uh, you know, been a wife and kept the house going and not worked, I still deserve to participate in all the money you earned in that business you started after we got married. Poof, cat out of the bag. He's uh, looking out the window at the neighbors with the binoculars and he's saying, and the, this is on their like three acre estate, looking at the neighbors across the way and she knows he hates <sighs> the neighbor. And he's saying to his wife, get my machete. She knows her husband has a temper. She's worried about that machete. She knows he, like he keeps it under the bed. She goes, okay, she doesn't want her husband to have the machete right now because he's angry at the neighbor. She goes and she goes to the far side of the room gets the machete. She's uh, going to hide it somewhere else. What she doesn't realize is during that time, he's already called the police. They're on their way. And when the police arrive, they see her with the machete in her hand. And he's clinging to the police saying he's so afraid because his wife, again, another crazy meltdown. And she's going to, she's been attacking him with the knife. And uh, she's, he's worried now that he's going to kill, that she's going to kill him and, uh, and herself. Again, she's rushed off to the hospital psychiatric hold she's very religious and kneels down several times a day to pray and that gets incorporated i saw the medical record patient has religious delusions she's asked if she wants an attorney she says no god is my advocate she's asked if she's afraid of her partner no uh do you think he could hurt you no uh, so no restraining order but then uh, because they're not trauma-informed i asked her the question do you think that your husband could physically harm you but your faith makes you feel like he can't really hurt you not spiritually. And she said, yes, my husband could kill me, but because God is my, uh, my protector, he can't hurt me where it really counts. And I said, uh, uh, is the reason why you're not afraid of your partner because of your religious faith? And she said, yes, I know he could kill me, but it uh, doesn't matter if I die because I'm going to heaven uh, to be with my dear Lord. So because of her cultural background, she was from a different country, a different culture, um, that wasn't incorporated into uh, the diagnostic regimen so that she was being looked at through the lens of uh, the DSM-5. Uh, what kind of psycho uh, psych um, psychological diagnosis can we come up with here? Oh, she's diagnosed as bipolar, psychotic features and religious delusions. Uh, and this is a woman that I had worked with for a year. And I think what uh, we need to do is 
have advocates and therapists and physicians all gathered around in a table and each having their input so we could be the threat assessment team and say, well, here's what I see from my perspective. And so we can have a balanced view and make a balanced judgment. Is she crazy? Is she looking crazy because she's been stalked 24 seven for the last, you know, however many weeks, uh, months, years? Uh, has she been driven crazy by this kind of uh, predatory behavior on the part of her partner? Is she crazy and being stalked? So there's at least four possibilities here. And yet we go always for Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is usually the the, the likeliest one. Not always. And as a physician, uh, I'm, you know, I'm sure you've heard this term because uh, I heard it from you guys, uh, um, especially at Stanford. Uh, when we hear hoof beats, we think zebras. And that's these guys are often zebras. Like the average, you know, the average person, you think you hear hoof beats, you think horses, right? But what if it's not? What if it's more exotic than that? What if he is a psychologist and an abuser? What if he's a financial analyst who's draining the accounts dry? Uh, what if he's a physician who says to his one his wife one night over dinner after she's asked for divi uh, divorce, do you know there's more than 40 ways to kill a woman and make it look like she died from natural causes? He didn't say, I'm going to run over you with the truck this afternoon, like something that a police officer could, could see as actionable, but she got the message loud and clear. I think we have to, as a society, recognize the zebras. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Ruth. It was such an honor to speak with you today. And thank you for your work empowering survivors and breaking the cycle of abuse. Oh, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here, Dr. Choi. I so appreciate your wise words, your wisdom, your uh, uh, beautiful questions. And thank you for helping get the word out to women and children and men. Thanks for listening to Lost or Found. Follow us, Lost or Found Podcast, on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends.